This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. One book with one main purpose. Uh, Very often, how many of you, when you're reading through the Bible in a year, you attempt to do it, you start in Genesis, you either stop in Leviticus in the clean and unclean laws, or you push through and you hit those genealogies of numbers and you say, I tap out, I'm done. I've done that. Like, I'm there with you. Right? And it's very easy when we look at the first five books of the Bible to think, what is this just about origins? Is it just about the history of Israel? What's going on here? Why did Moses write it? Why do we have it? Why is it in our Bible? And so the title of the series, beginning with Moses, I stole that from Luke 22, where Jesus on the road to Emmaus, as he's walking with these two disciples, having this conversation, and you remember, they were just totally discouraged. They thought Jesus was the Messiah. They see him crucified. All of their hopes were shattered. They didn't know he was raised from the dead. And he had veiled his presence from them. And he's walking along the road to Emmaus. And he says, oh, slow to believe all that the prophets have said concerning me. And then what does it say? Beginning with Moses. He walked and showed them everything concerning himself. I love that we sang uh, that Getty hymn by faith because that, that first two verses covers exactly all the application I wanted you to have this morning. So if you forget anything I have to say, or if it's too fast, you go back to that song and you sing the first two verses, because that's exactly what we're trying to get at. So the title this morning, Living by Faith and the Need for a New Heart, this survey of the Pentateuch, I'm, what I want to do is I want to give you the application up front. And the reason I want to do that is because I want you to know where I'm going covering these five books. And so by doing that, thinking that the Pentateuch is one book with one purpose, I actually want you to start in Galatians chapter (laughs) 3. I got a chuckle out of that. Galatians chapter 3, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We don't have time for that, although you can go uh, back and do that. I want to start in verse 15. Because the first five books of the Bible are sometimes summarized by the New Testament with the phrase, the law, the law of Moses. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it's been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. He's talking about um, the law in verse 13 and that the promise had come, verse 14. In fact, I need to go back to verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And he says, okay, now, verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this. So Paul says, if you're confused by everything else in chapter 3, and you may be if you go back and read it, here's the point. Verse 17, the law which came 430 years later than the promise to Abraham 
does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on promise, but God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So Paul, in describing why the law of Moses is there and why it came, he says, listen, there's a contrast. There's a close relationship, actually, before the contrast. The close relationship is between the Abrahamic covenant, verse 14 and 16, Paul's gospel, and the new covenant, that the Spirit would come and bring a new heart. Now the contrast is to the law, the powerlessness and temporary nature of the law that shows the powerlessness and temporary nature of the old covenant given to Moses at Sinai. So, the law curses those who do not obey it perfectly, we're going to see. The principle of the law in the giving of it through Exodus to Deuteronomy, even in the second giving of it, is not based upon believing, but upon doing. That is the Mosaic law. Christ must intervene, the Messiah let me use the Hebrew word, Mashiach, Hamashiach, the Messiah must intervene to bring about and redeem us, bring about uh, the promise and redeem us from the curse of the law. This is what Moses is talking about from Genesis to Deuteronomy. So the law was never designed to secure righteousness, inheritance, or life. Instead, the law was given because of transgressions, Paul says. In Galatians 3. So, is this how the New Testament authors understood this? Absolutely. If you read Hebrews 11, they go through all of the, the, the patriarchs in the Pentateuch and say, what were they doing? By faith, Abraham believed the promise when he offered up Isaac. By faith, Moses, who he, even though he lived in Egypt and had all the wonderful things of Egypt, he considered that as less than gaining Christ. The passing pleasures of sin in Egypt are nothing compared to, by faith, gaining what Moses knew of as the Messiah. So, let's jump into this. And I want to start with two important questions. Again, I'm, I'm bringing up the application first. What's the big idea? The big idea is living by faith and the need for a new heart. And both of those things are talked about in the Pentateuch. And the way Moses talks about it is by contrasting the lives of two men, Abraham and Moses. In fact, it lays out two fundamentally dissimilar ways of walking with God, as Deuteronomy 29 says. One is to be like Moses under the law at Sinai or the covenant at Sinai. The other is to be like Abraham, who is by faith and apart from the law a participator in the promise of God. And what Moses is commending is not the law at Sinai, even though he's the mediator of that law. What he's commending is the life by faith in the promises of God regarding the Messiah who's to come. How do we know that? Because he tells us over and over, guess what? There's going to be another prophet like me who's going to do what this law can't do. He's actually going to circumcise the hearts of you people. We'll get there. Big idea. 
importance of living by faith and the need for a new heart. You see, the, the New Testament says that the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. And how, how could the gospel, the good news regarding the Messiah, be preached to Abraham beforehand? Well, let's start. Well, one more, the so what. Why is this important? Why do we need to know this for tomorrow morning when we, well, we have a holiday tomorrow, most of us, Tuesday morning when we get up and go to work? Well, the reason we need to know this, as Graham Goldsworthy says, the law was given to a people who had been chosen by grace and already redeemed by grace. There can be no question of the law functioning as a way of achieving salvation by works. So we don't want to look at this Pentateuch as if somehow we have to figure out how to add works to grace. Because all that leads to is slavery, like Romans 8 says. Burdens, heavy burdens. In fact, the law is like the moon to the sun of the gospel. All it does is reflect the glory and majesty and supremacy of this new covenant that's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews talks about. It's a divine commentary on the use of the old covenant and why the new covenant is so much better. Because Jesus is better. He's a better mediator. He's a better priest. He's a better sacrifice. He's a better temple. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. So all of this should lead us to see the glory and the majesty and the sufficiency of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it ought to give us great hope that God has been working His plan from the beginning. No one has sidetracked Him. He's not on plan B. Oh man, Adam sinned. What am I going to do? No, He's been working His plan, which means He has you and I right where He wants us. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're suffering, whatever you're struggling with, whatever hopes and desires that are being unmet, God has you and I right where He wants us. And He's working His plan, and He's taking great delight in His plan, and no one can thwart it. We're going to even see that this morning. Let's turn to Genesis 1. When we read the Pentateuch, it must always be through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are new covenant Christians. We have the answer. We don't have to read it as if we don't know that Jesus is the Messiah. Here's why. This brings us great hope. Everything lost in the fall is regained in the Lord Jesus. Everything demanded by the law is fulfilled in him. Everything foreshadowed that we're going to see this morning in the Pentateuch finds its completion in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have great hope because we know the end of the story and he's coming back and he's making all things new. Maybe I'll get to this. That's the application. That's the encouragement. Now I want to show it to you as we go through. Chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we could call the book of Genesis Paradise Lost. <clears throat> we don't have time to read the creation account, but we see from Genesis chapter 1 to 11, four foundational events. This first one here that is in verse 1, the creation of the world, eventually later in chapter 1, the creation of man. In fact, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, 
over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now this is the the creation of man and the divine mandate to fill the earth. Now what is Adam and Eve supposed to fill the earth with? Well, other people, we know that. But what we see in these early pages of Genesis is that Eden is a prototype of the city of God that God wants to build. How do we know this? Well, Adam is a king here. He's ruling. He's reigning. He has authority to name the animals and all creatures. He's also a priest. He has responsibilities where it says he's placed into the garden to work it and to keep it. Shamar and Avad are the Hebrew words. Now, these words are also used in Leviticus for the priesthood that keeps and serves the tabernacle. These words are used throughout the Old Testament as words of worship to talk about priestly duty. In fact, the same word when Moses tells Pharaoh, let my people go, and God says, you tell him that they would go out in the wilderness and worship me, it's the same word as keep, to serve to worship. So Adam was also a priest. Where am I going with this? Well, Adam was a king priest, the first one, and Eden was a prototype city. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth with a bunch of king priests, a bunch of little Adams and Eves who are king priests, so that the whole earth would become the temple city of God. That was the design. Well, the corruption of man in the fall from chapters 3 to 5. The authority of man to rule on earth is transferred from Adam to the serpent. God strips man of their royal and priestly status and kicks them out of the garden, the left foot of fellowship, as it were. Now, in the midst of that, of course, Genesis 3.15, in this God speaking to the serpent says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This first promise of a descendant of Eve who is going to come and who is going to crush the head of the serpent and by implication restore everything lost in the garden and in the fall. Well, chapters 6 to 9 of Genesis show that the destruction of man and the flood uh, was needed because the fall of man is on display such that the conclusion right before the flood, you know it well, the heart of man was evil always continuously. And so God brings about the flood in the world that once was perished by water. Genesis 10 and 11, you have this dispersion of man, the nations. You remember this. They said, let us be like God and build a temple to heaven. And the place where they were going to do it became known as Babylon, the great enemy. This is man's temple city. This is man's attempt to fulfill God's plan. Let's build a temple city that that handles the earth and covers the earth and let it be not to God his glory but let it be to our glory let us be like god and so god comes down and he disperses man and scrambles up their languages and sends them out 
into the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, this is part of the plan of God because we know that what God then does is God chooses a man that the Messiah would come by, Abraham, and the Messiah comes and then he sends us out to go to those nations that are dispersed and scattered and bring in all of God's elect so that in Revelation, every nation, tribe, and people, and tongue would be represented. And here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the earth. Oh, by the way, Revelation also says what's going to happen, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, is a temple city. And what's it filled with? A bunch of king priests. And guess what? It's going to be over all the earth. So, spoiler alert, the first Adam failed to fill the earth with a bunch of king priests. The second Adam, the Lord Jesus, he has created us to be a kingdom of priests, and we will reign on the earth forever with him. God is about his business, doing his work, and he's going to fulfill his promises. Well, back to Genesis chapter 12. Let's read verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God, as He scatters these nations in His grace and his kindness he chooses abraham and he says abraham get out of the land of ur go down to this land we know called haran later on but that's not the place you're going to stay i'm going to send you to a promised land i'm going to give you a land you see this choice of abraham this choice of abraham in whom There's going to be a land given to him. There's going to be descendants like the stars of the sea given to him so that this family becomes a nation. It's all in preparation of God sending his Messiah. We don't yet know it in the story. We just know that Abraham's called and and God promises in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We don't yet know from the story of Genesis what this means. But think about those first listeners to this. By the way, the first listener was not Abraham. The first listeners were the people in the wilderness who were headed out of Egypt to the promised land. So they knew a little bit more than Abraham knew. They knew that God had called them to go to this promised land. They had already verbally heard the promises of God. Now they're hearing Moses recount the story, but from the divine perspective with the inerrant inspiration of the Holy Spirit to say, oh, it's something far bigger than giving you a land. It's something far bigger than making you a nation. In you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. In other words, in you, the curse is going to be reversed. The promise is going to be fulfilled. All things are going to be made new. This is why Paul in Galatians said, hey, guess what? The law that came 430 years after the promise, it doesn't nullify that promise. I remember our beloved George Fox when he used to preach through this. He said, if you don't understand Genesis 12, 1 to 3, you don't understand the Old Testament. And that's a pretty bold statement, but I think he's right. Because here you have the promise of God to his people. And what does he go on to say in chapter 15 when he reconfirms the promise? Well, Abraham's response, verse 6, 
Abraham believed in the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness. So guess what? Salvation in the Old Testament was by faith. It was by grace through faith. And guess what you got when you believed the promises of God regarding the Messiah? You got the righteousness of God credited and reckoned to your account. Hallelujah. That's good news. You know why that's good news? You don't ever have to doubt that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. You don't ever have to fall into the trap thinking that you somehow have to earn God's favor or somehow get yourself cleaned up before you can come back to God or somehow you got to do this list of whatever the cultural checkbox is for you to be a good Christian. You cling to Christ and you believe the promises regarding Jesus and know that your hope is secure and fast in him. Abraham believed God. This is, this is the point Moses is getting at. I don't want to minimize this or race by this. Moses wrote this. He wanted the hearers to understand this, that salvation is by faith. He was never teaching salvation was by the law. The law was, well, as Paul says, a jailer, a steward until Christ came. So this promise to Abraham covers Genesis 12 all the way to the end of Genesis. In Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. By faith, Abraham believed the promise. And then he demonstrated his faith in chapter 22 when by faith he offered up his son Isaac. Well, this promise is reiterated to Abraham's descendants. And, and God clarifies it's not Ishmael that receives the promise, it's Isaac. And the promise is given again to Isaac. Oh yeah, in your descendant will come this promise. It wasn't by Esau, it was by Jacob. So Isaac is, Abraham is chapters 12 to 23, Isaac is chapters 24 to 26, Jacob is chapters 27 to 36. This promise is not coming through Esau, it's coming through Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. And then you have the story of Joseph from chapters 37 to 50 where God is keeping his promise by delivering his people through one of the sons of Jacob in the providence of God. You know the story. His brothers sold him into slavery. He goes down to Egypt. He goes from a pit to a palace. He becomes the right-hand guy to the Pharaoh in the Perfect timing for the brothers to come down in the midst of a famine and say, hey, we need help. And what Joseph does is, after a whole big story that we don't have time to go into, says what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And he brings them down and they settle in Goshen land. And what you have happened between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1 is that the family becomes a nation. They're there in Egypt. They end up coming into slavery because of the wickedness of the Pharaoh at the time, which leads to the deliverance. But I want you to turn to Genesis 49 because the way the story goes, it would seem like Joseph would be the, the line by which the Messiah would come. But here we don't see that in Genesis 49. Genesis 49 verse 10, Jacob on his deathbed is blessing his son Judah, and he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Now that's a, 
I don't want to get into the details of Shiloh. You might even have in your Bible it translated um, uh, until it, the, the one comes to whom it's promised or something like that. Uh, I think this is a reference to Jesus. I, I don't, it, the reason why is because then you have this, uh, him compared verse 9 to a lion. And this imagery of the lion of the tribe of Judah that's used throughout the Bible, most particularly in the book of Revelation chapter 5, where the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and he's fit to open the scroll and loose its seals. And when John turns around, he doesn't see a lion. What does he see? A lamb standing as if slain in the center of the throne. And so this lion of the tribe of Judah who's promised from Genesis 49, Shiloh, this one is coming. And so God is continuing to keep his promises and he narrows it down here and says, it's through the line of Judah that my Messiah is going to come. And we know this later in scripture because God reiterates the promise to David, a king of Judah. 2 Samuel 7, you're going to have a descendant who's going to sit on the throne forever. And David says, wow, you've talked about my house for a long time to come. Yeah, forever is a long time to come. And then you see those genealogies in Matthew and Luke. And what are they establishing? That the Lord Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a descendant of David, and he's a descendant of Abraham, and he's a descendant of Adam. So all of the promises in Genesis are fulfilled in Jesus. On to Exodus. Exodus is essentially answering the question, who is the Lord? In fact, this is, I think, why Moses wrote it is because this generation in the wilderness, they had experienced the Lord's deliverance, but they had not been taught in a codified way. I mean, they had been taught discipled, and as they went along by the way, like Deuteronomy 6 says, but they were not taught in a, in a biblical codified way that guess what? This one who saved and delivered you is the one who made the heavens and the earth. The God of Genesis 1 is the God who delivered you. So this is essentially a book about knowing God through experience and therefore worshiping him. That the response to knowing God is worshiping God. And the worship language that's used is the language of service. That same word, avad, that was Adam who was to keep the garden and to till it, to serve it. Shamar, guard or keep, avad, serve, till, work. So Adam wasn't just a gardener. Adam was a priest. And he was to serve God. And in Exodus 19.6, the people of Israel were to be a kingdom of priests to God, serving Him, worshiping Him. Now, God always takes the initiative in the book of Exodus. We see this. God initiates by revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3. Verse 5. Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then he goes on to say, I'm calling you to go at the end of chapter 3. And Moses says, who are you, God, that, that I would go for you? And then you have it here in verse 14. God says to Moses, 
I am who I am. And he says, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, now what's fascinating about this from the original audience's perspective is starting in Genesis chapter 2, Moses had been using the word Yahweh for the Lord. So you have Elohim and you have Yahweh and you have Adonai are the three Old Testament words for God. And Elohim is in the beginning Elohim. Uh, God created the heavens and the earth. But as, as soon as you get into chapter 2, Moses is already using the covenant name for the Lord, Yahweh, throughout Genesis. And now finally in Exodus, we get the explanation of where was that covenant name revealed. So I find it fascinating from the, the perspective of the people in the wilderness that they already knew that the covenant name of God was Yahweh, but now they're hearing the story they probably heard about it, the burning bush. I mean, how could not? How could that story not spread? But like now they're hearing it from Moses like, wow, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the whole God who's been protecting our people, he's the one who took the initiative and revealed himself to Moses and raised up Moses to be our deliverer, to take us out of Egypt and to lead us to the promised land. And they're hearing this at Sinai when they're halfway there. And so this redemption from Egypt is chapters one to 18. The people are coming to know God, to know Yahweh. Now, of course, Pharaoh, throughout this narrative, refuses to acknowledge Yahweh, even when his firstborn is killed, when his armies are finally killed in the sea crossing. And why does this happen? Turn over to chapter 14, verse four. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. Anytime you see the word Lord in all caps in your English Bible, it's the name Yahweh. And so he says to Moses in Genesis 3, Who am I? I'm Yahweh. I am that I am. What's Pharaoh going to know? I'm Yahweh. Again, verse 8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel. He's doing exactly what God said he would do. Of course, what happens in chapter 14 and 15 is God brings them right up. It's, you know, this is why uh, it was such a great movie, right? You bring right up to the Red Sea. There's no escape. The armies are coming. They're going to be smashed God parts the sea, and they go through. But it's not over. It's like that. You think it's, it's like every movie. You think it's over, but then the bad guy gets up again, and it's like, no, I'm going to get you this time. And they get through, and what's going to happen? Well, then God smashes them and collapses the sea on the armies. And what do they do in response? Oh, they sing praises. They sing praises to God because they know it wasn't Moses who delivered them. It wasn't their strength. It was not might. It was not power. It was Yahweh. And so they come to know who God is through experience, through his deliverance, through his redemption. God always takes the initiative. And of course, we could talk about the, the you know, Passover and all the imagery there, but I'm going to just save that for two weeks from now when I go through Exodus 
But chapters 19 to 14 of Exodus, you finally get the revelation at Sinai from God that we're reading now. Chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings, this is God speaking, and brought you to myself. I love that. Why did God bring them out of Egypt? It wasn't merely to give them land. He brought them out of Egypt to bring them to himself. He is drawn near. This is what Ephesians says, by the way, doesn't it? Us who were without hope and without God... In due time, at the high point of the ages, at the right time, he sent his son so that we would no longer be alienated and, and, and estranged from God and strangers from the promise apart from any of this, that by grace through faith we've been brought near to God and now we can draw near to him. Oh, and wait till we get there. I'm, I'm stealing my own thunder a little bit. But this tabernacle that's going to be built here in the next section is the means by which God is drawing near to his people and they can draw near to him and it was all a shadow to point to Jesus so he gives them the law in chapters 19 to 24 and listen to what he says verse 5 here of 19 5 now then if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant you'll be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So included in these ten commandments in this book of the covenant is a promise that they will be a kingdom of priests. They will be building this temple city. This city temple. If the kingdom and priests, the kingdom is the city and the temple is the priesthood. Right, This isn't hard to understand. This is the language of Scripture that this is what God is doing. And so God is beginning to reverse the curse. He's promised it to Abraham. He's kept His promise to His descendants. He turned the family into a nation. He delivered the nation from Egypt, brought them to Sinai. They're at the midway point at least uh, plot-wise, not time-wise, because ge the first generation perishes in the wilderness, but plot-wise, they're at the midway point at Sinai on the way to the promised land. And the bookends of the Pentateuch are Eden and looking, gazing into the promised land. Now we know this is not the end of the story, but this is the narrative that the Pentateuch gives us, that Moses gives us. And so the reader finds something has gone fundamentally wrong at Sinai, though. Because there's a golden calf incident that happens. If God is going to be in their midst and God is going to be their people and He's going to have this covenant with them and He's given them these commandments, something fundamentally goes wrong. Why is it when Moses goes up to the mountain to be with God that while he's gone, good old Aaron, the high priest, who's supposed to be the mediator of the people, says, yeah, Get all your gold and we'll throw it in a fire and see what pops out. Wow, a golden calf. Imagine that. That was a, probably the weirdest looking calf you'd ever seen. No, he didn't just throw it in the fire and it popped out. Obviously, they crafted it. And why did they craft a golden calf? Because a bull, if you've ever seen one in person, is strong. 
and scary. And if the horns of a bull and a bull were on your side, you would think, that's the biggest, strongest animal I got, other than maybe a lion. But this is who delivered us. This strong, mighty God, and we don't know what he looks like, so let's put him in the image of the strongest beast we know. Well, they broke the law. But God doesn't cast them off. Oh, he threatens to. Turn over to Exodus 33. Now, we know that this is a narrative dialogue that God is having with Moses, and, and I don't think God is changing his mind here like he, oh man, these people built this golden calf, what am I going to do? No, he's wanting to demonstrate through the response of Moses his mercy and compassion towards undeserving people. And Moses as a mediator pleading the case. Verse um, 12 of chapter 33, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you said, I've known you by name. I've also found favor in my sight. Therefore, I pray to you, if I found favor, let me know your ways. Verse 14, he said, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And he says, if you don't go with us, do not lead us up from here, for how can it be known that I've found favor in your sight? And God says, I'm going to show you my glory, verse 19. I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. And then you have 34, chapter 34, verse Five, the Lord descends in a cloud, stood there with him. The Lord passed by in front of him. Verse 6 proclaims, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sins, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generation. Moses made haste to bow low to the earth and worship. Then Moses pleads for them. God renews the covenant there at the end of chapter 34. And Moses comes down and his face is shining with glory. And so this golden calf incident, God doesn't cast Israel off. Instead, he renews his covenant in chapter 34, and in revealing his glory to Moses, here's what I want you to get about this incident. He's revealing his character. When he says, I'm going to show you my glory, and I'm going to say my name, and then what does he reveal? I am the gracious and compassionate one, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. Has said and ameth are the Hebrew words. And Moses is writing this in the book of Exodus for the people to hear this in the wilderness. Why? They need to understand this is Yahweh. This is who he is, the revelation from God. His establishing of a special relationship with these people is not based ultimately upon their works, but upon his grace, his loving kindness, his faithfulness to his promise, his faithfulness to his character. This is why Paul again says, God's going to keep his promise to Abraham even though the people didn't keep the law of Moses. It was never intended to be kept in order to earn salvation. 
It was a guardian until Christ came. And then chapters 35 to 40, Moses gives all these detailed descriptions of building the tabernacle. This becomes the focal point for the Lord's presence in the midst of his people. Again, in anticipation of the temple city, God is in their midst. It's a place where they could approach him, a place where they could find satisfaction, propitiation for sins on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, where sins could be covered, all of this pointing to what Jesus was going to do. All of these laws of clean and unclean that come about in Leviticus were not a means to push people away from God. They were the means by which God's people could draw near to him because he had already drawn near to them and was in their presence in the middle of the camp. And so this tabernacle and the picture of it, it's a picture of a house. Like sometimes we think of this tabernacle as something, you know, like super like old and maybe more like a cathedral or something. No, this was a picture of a house. How do we know this? Well, in the middle was the place where the house dweller lived, the owner of the house, the Holy of Holies. And the ark was his footstool. And outside of that, there was a table and there was bread on the table and there was a lampstand. The lights were on, foods on the table, hospitalities available, draw near to the person who lives in the house. But it was a holy house because it's God who's in its midst. And it was a royal house which is why it was decorated with such extravagance and luxury because it's God's house. But it was a house in the midst of the people where they could draw near to God. This place where they would worship God and be in his presence and be a kingdom of priests to him in the wilderness, this portable temple, this tabernacle. Leviticus goes on to answer this question about this holy one who's in their midst, and I've summarized it as be holy for I the Lord am holy, there's a huge contrast in the book of Leviticus between clean and unclean. In fact, four truths in Leviticus about holiness. God himself is intrinsically holy. He's the definition of holiness. He's also the only source of holiness is the second thing. There is no holiness apart from God. Third, Israel's action and attitudes are to reflect God's perfect nature. That is, they're to be holy as God is holy. And fourth, holiness is a result of divine activity. Now this is getting to the gospel, isn't it? Because if we were to say, okay, God is holy. He's the very definition of holiness. You could say, amen. He's the only source of holiness. He's the only God. There is no other source. Amen. You're to be holy just as he's holy. Well, after Genesis 2, that's not an amen. That's a oh no. Now, the hope of the Pentateuch is that God's provided a means by which the people can be holy. Now, it's a shadow in the Old Covenant but in the promise of a Messiah, a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah who's to come, who's, as we're going to see in Deuteronomy, a prophet like Moses who's going to come, guess what he's going to do? He's going to make the people holy. And this is what we know Jesus has done. He became sin. Him who knew no sin became sin for us 
That what? We might become the righteousness of God in him. And how do we get the righteousness of God from Jesus to us? It's not by works of the law. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so there's great hope for you. If you don't know Jesus, you can come to him right now and he will forgive your sins and bring you near to himself. And you don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to obey a list of rules. You come to Jesus and cling to him by faith, believing he died for your sins and rose again. And you are saved, Romans 10 says. By the way, that's a rabbit trail that I don't want to go down, but Romans 10, 9, the verse that brought me to Jesus, verses 4 to 9, Paul there is talking about the Pentateuch. He's quoting the first five books of Moses and saying, the conclusion is, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So if you don't know Jesus, come to Christ. Be saved. He will make you holy, declare you to be holy, and implant his Holy Spirit in you so that you will become more and more like Jesus. Hallelujah, this is good news. Well, chapters 1 to 17 of Leviticus is all about sacrifice. And what we learn in this sacrificial system that it is God by his grace who sanctifies, who sets people apart and makes them holy. All of the sacrifices complement one another by addressing all the different aspects of human wrongdoing. So if you were one of these people hearing this for the very first time, you've already blown it. You built that golden calf. You at least contributed the earrings or the, the, the necklace or the bracelet to that thing, and you already feel guilty. You've heard that you're to be holy. You've already heard all of this and you failed. Guess what? You already know I'm on the other side of this. I've already blown it. I've already broken the covenant. Now God is giving them a sacrificial system that in whatever way you've broken this covenant, there's a means of covering your sin. It's grace. There's a provision of atonement that's gracious and undeserved. God shows his commitment to keep his promise, to give people a means by which they can still have relationship and draw near to him. This is not Adam being kicked out of the garden. This is not the world that once was destroyed by flood. This is God in the midst of a stiff-necked, rebellious hard-hearted people giving them what they don't deserve, a means by which they could draw near to him whenever they wanted. Now, the earlier laws um, seem to appear to keep the priests in check, but there's an incident that happens in Leviticus 17, and I, I actually want to turn there just briefly. It's the um, goat idol incident that we could call it, the golden calf idol incident, we all know about in Exodus 32. The goat idol incident, maybe we're not quite as familiar with in uh, Leviticus 17. Um, he says, uh, where do I want to go to? What verse? Chapter 16, thank you. That would help if I'm in the right chapter. I appreciate that. Yeah, you have... Oh boy, did not want to be slowed down by this. So, it became, so the people begin sacrificing to goat idols. 
It is 17, isn't it? Seven. They shall, thank you. I appreciate that. So 17.7, they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they played the harlot. This shall be a permanent statute to them throughout their generations. So right after this goat idol incident, more laws are given here in the book of Leviticus. In fact, the whole holiness code from chapter 18 to 27 is given God gives them this, renews the covenant with them at the end of that in chapter 26, but why does God all of a sudden pile on more laws? I think Galatians 3.19 gives us the answer to that. Paul actually says, why was more law given? He says, well, the law was added to the covenant because of the transgressions of the people. What's fascinating about this is you see this, Exodus 19, before any laws were given, before the Ten Commandments were given, he says, you're to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Now, what did they do? They said, oh, we don't want to draw near to God. We don't want to be a kingdom of priests. Hey, Moses, you go do that for us. We'll just stay down here. You go up there. And then more law was given. They sinned. By, they didn't live by faith and draw near to God. They were afraid, and they pushed Moses to God, and so the Ten Commandments were given. Then the Ten Commandments weren't enough. They worship a golden calf, and so more laws are given. All of these priestly laws. Well, then the priests themselves are not worshiping God as they ought to. In fact, they're encouraging the people by implication in Leviticus, hey, go ahead and worship goat demons, goat idols. Like, did we even know that was going on? I didn't even know that was a thing, you know? Like, I mean, bulls, at least they're strong. Goats, I mean, they're goats. I, I mean, we got goats eating grass in Benicia that, I mean, that's about all they're good for is to like be lawnmowers. I mean, I, I don't know. Obviously, they were being superstitious with the goat and sheep sacrifices, thinking, well, I don't need to go to the tabernacle to do this. It, maybe it's the goats we're worshiping. God doesn't have a picture, so maybe these animals we're offering are what we're worshiping, so let's do it in the backyard or these goat demons these maybe this is uh, we're appeasing these gods just to keep them out of out of our hair like the gods of egypt who were creatures worshiping the creature rather than the creator well anyway this holiness code is given and what's interesting about the holiness code is it's it's almost like you can get uncleanness, the ability to transmit uncleanness to other people or objects. And the priests were in the greatest danger of becoming unclean from foods and sicknesses around them. And yet, and so this whole issue was not about hygiene and cleanliness ultimately, it was about worship. What do you have to do to worship God and be in his presence? You have to be holy as he's holy. And this is what's remarkable about Jesus, because he lived in the midst of this holiness code, and when he touched a leper, rather than becoming unclean, he made them clean. What a testimony to the work of Christ. And if we were to preach through the Gospels, we would be making this point regularly, that he was the fulfillment of all of the old covenant and all of the promises, because he is greater than it, he's the fulfillment of it, and he brings about his own law called the law of Christ. That he says, I didn't come to destroy the law of Moses, I came to 
fulfill it, fill it up full, bring it to its intended conclusion, which is me. That's what he says. Well, in the book of Numbers, we finally see them going toward the promised land. And what we see here is God's promise to Abraham will not be thwarted by human disobedience. Chapters 1 to 10 is sort of just this laying the preparation at Sinai, the old generation. They're numbered as an army preparing for war. Talking about those living in the war camp must be pure and holy. The layout for the war camp is specific. Practical commands are given. And I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 9, verse 15. The presence of Yahweh will go before them. Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And when the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would set out. In the place where the cloud settled, sons of Israel would camp. So on and so forth. So this pillar of cloud by day, this pillar of fire by night, what did it demonstrate? God's presence with them. The manifest presence of God. The, in the Hebrew, the Shekinah. Or you might have heard the old way of saying it, the Shekinah. But you know, I don't, that's, you know, potato, potato. The Shekinah, the presence of God in his, the midst of his people. Let's not miss the point of this. God is directing them. God is leading them. God is going before them. And in preparation, the armies of God, as it were, were arranged around the throne of God in the tabernacle of God. And it shows that they're not only arranged for war, they're arranged for worship. And the people of God are blessed through the rule of God. And God's presence is in their midst. In fact, when you look at the layout, the tabernacle's in the middle with three, uh, three um, <clears throat> families on the west, three on the east, three on the north, three on the south. God's in the middle. He's in their presence. Now, again, why is this preparation for war going on? They're going to take the promised land. And part of Moses writing the Pentateuch is giving them the divine justification for doing it. Why are they going to take this land and go to war against these people, the Canaanites? Well, we've heard throughout the Pentateuch that they're wicked and they're evil and their practices are evil and they commit idolatry and don't marry them because you'll be brought down into that same idolatry and so on and so forth. So it is a divine judgment upon the people through the nation of Israel with God in their presence. Israel's the instrument, but God's the one bringing judgment. Just like he brought judgment in the flood and again this old generation fails don't they chapters 11 to 24 you know the story the 12 spies go down some of you might sing the old sunday school song with the hand gestures of 10 saw bad and two saw good i don't know if you knew that one i remember that from one summer of vbs i don't remember the rest of the song i do remember that now, what did these 10 spies say who were fearful? They rebelled. They said, don't go in. God's not going to keep his promises. We're not trusting the Lord. We're going to be caught. We're going to be destroyed. Let's just stay here. Let's go back to Egypt instead. No. Of course, we know Joshua and Caleb are the only two spies that 
said, no, we trust the Lord. What is it revealing? It reveals a hard heart. They murmured against Yahweh. They challenged those in authority. Ultimately, they committed idolatry. And what ends up happening, as Paul says in Galatians 3.10, the law becomes a curse to them. It actually condemns them. So this has been the case of Israel, not just the ten spies, but Israel. Grumbling at the start of their journey results in punishment. I'm sorry, no punishment at the start in Exodus 15, but the same behavior after Sinai and the giving of law results in destroying fire in Numbers 10. Grumbling over the manna and quail led to no punishment before Sinai in Exodus 16, but a killing plague after Sinai in Numbers 11. A Sabbath violation was simply a reprimand before Sinai in Exodus 16, but a death by stoning after Sinai in Numbers 15. Grumbling over water led to no punishment before Sinai in Exodus 17, but a destroying fire after Sinai in Numbers 20. The differences, Jason Meyer says, are so staggering that it's hard to escape that the dire conclusion that Sinai does something profoundly negative to Israel. It becomes a curse to them. It's incredible. Nevertheless, what Moses is saying is God will not forget his promise to Abraham. Even the lengthy account from Numbers 22 to 24 of the activities and prophecies of Balaam, son of Beor, that great prophet. With heavy irony, he was not a great prophet, although he did speak truth unwillingly. It reveals God's desire to bless rather than curse Israel. And so what happens is, though that generation is going to die in the wilderness because of their unbelief, God will not forget His promise. There is still hope in the promises of God. Chapters 25 to 36. The second generation is numbered for war again. Only Joshua and Caleb remain alive. Details on the land are given. And what's remarkable to me, again, thinking about that, those people who were hearing it in the wilderness, that second generation especially, they lived their whole lives in the wilderness. Most of them never even lived in Egypt. They didn't see the sea crossing. They didn't see the deliverance. But they had heard the promises of God. What does that mean? They had to believe them by faith. Just like we do. We didn't live at the time of Jesus. We didn't see him walk the earth. We didn't see him raised from the dead. We weren't part of the 500 that were with him after he was raised. We have to believe by faith. But they were God's people. God was in their midst. God was fighting for them. God would give them the land and fulfill his promises. This is the very definition of hope in the Bible. Hope in the Bible is not a pipe dream. It's not wishful thinking. It's not like me hoping I'd win the lottery even though I don't play. Although I think my odds are probably slightly better when I don't play. <laughs> hope is an earnest expectation, as Romans 8 says. Hope does not disappoint. Why doesn't hope disappoint? Well, because Romans 5 says, God the Father has shed His love abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, reminding us by the indwelling ministry of the Spirit that all of His promises are yes and amen in Jesus. In fact, we have this new covenant. I, I, what, what's staggering to me is like I look at this and I think they don't have it. And, and they're hoping 
Joshua and Caleb are hoping in the promises of God. Hebrews talks about this, right? These, by faith, the the hall of heroes in Hebrews 11, by faith, who were believing the promises of God, but who had not yet obtained what was promised, but God had prepared something greater, better for us. We can look at this and say, this is not because they were so great. This is because God is so great. And He's gracious, and He's compassionate, and He's merciful. And he keeps his promises. And I don't know about you, but I need to remember this morning that God keeps all of his promises. That he hasn't forgotten about me. That I'm not somehow slipped his attention that others are more important than me. That he hasn't left me hanging. He's not, you know, that he's not done with me. That, that he has plans and purposes. And I don't know what they are, but God does. And so this might be exactly what you needed to hear this morning. Is that there's a God who made the heavens and earth, who has been working His plan since the beginning of the world, and you're part of His plan. To be a kingdom of priests, to worship and serve Him forever. And that he's in the purpose of using you right now as instruments in his hands to be the ambassador pleading with people, be reconciled to God. And that he hasn't forgotten about you. He's actually going to make all things new through his son when Jesus returns. And this temple city will cover the whole earth and the whole new creation will be filled with the glory and presence of God the Father forever. And we will see his face and we'll worship and serve him. And he'll wipe away every tear from her eyes. That's what Revelation says. This is good news. Deuteronomy. As the next generation stands against, again at Kadesh Barnea, overlooking the promised land, on the verge of entering, Moses reminds them that the greatest thing is a commitment to love the Lord and worship Him only And love throughout the book of Deuteronomy is not simply a matter of feelings. It includes that. But it has very practical implications about obedience. He sets before them a choice at the end of the book. Chapter 30, verse 19, a choice between life and death, blessings and cursings. Now, Moses in this uh, in Deuteronomy, or the second giving of the law in the Greek, Deuteros and Namos, this second giving of the law, he reviews chapter 1-4, to four, the Israel's wanderings. And I think the purpose of this book, I think it's pretty clear, it's to explain the law, to be a commentary on the earlier books. And what it does in the explanation in chapters 1-4 to four is, Moses is essentially saying, hey people, remember the faithfulness of Yahweh. And respond to that faithfulness with loving and obedient worship. Remember that you kept forgetting him, right? Because you people forget the Lord. You're hard-hearted. You're stiff-necked. You don't remember anything. But remember that God's never forgotten you. He's remembered you. Remember what he did. He delivered you out of Egypt. He brought you all these years of wandering through the wilderness and fed you. Manna from heaven. He provided for you. He provided water. He provided sustenance. He was in your presence and in your midst. And so your response to his faithfulness is simply to worship, to love him, and to worship him. 
And so he again rehearses from chapter 4 to chapter 28 Israel's law. And we see in these, these chapters a little bit of a distinguishing difference between the first giving of the law where Moses is leaning in on this idea of true worship being rooted in love and obedience to God. I'll talk about this more when we get to Deuteronomy. But he gives really an exposition, a sermon on the law, desiring wholehearted worship of God and the forsaking of idols. What's interesting also in this section, turn to Deuteronomy 18, I've alluded to it twice, but it becomes clear that Moses is not the Messiah. And I don't think this is an accident because if we were living at the time of Moses and Moses was the deliverer who brought us out of Egypt and who led us faithfully through the wilderness wanderings and brought us to the edge of the promised land, don't you think we would be tempted to think that Moses is the Messiah, this one who was promised? But Moses says, chapter 18, verses 15 to 19, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. Now this is fascinating because Jesus uses this idea and says, uh, I have the authority to supersede the law of Moses. I have the authority to tell you, Peter, that you can eat a ham sandwich now. <laughs> or rock badger or whatever other unclean animal that... Uh, do you desire to eat? I mean, uh, all foods are now clean. All foods don't taste good. All foods are now clean. But Moses here knows he's not the Messiah. This is according to all you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. So he's telling him, hey, this was what you wanted. That was an act of uh, lack of faith. That was sinning, but... Uh, the Lord said, hey, they have spoken well. Verse 18, I'll raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. What's fascinating is this is when you read the gospels, this is exactly what Jesus claims. I speak the father's words and I do the father's works. That's what Jesus says. In other words, that prophet that Moses talked about, I'm him. And when I hear people say Jesus never claimed to be God and he never claimed to be the Messiah, I think that's the most foolish thing in the world. Have you ever read the Bible? Have you read the words of Jesus? Because if you know the story, if you know the Pentateuch, he alludes to it so many times and says, guess what? Everything that was promised, I'm him. Think about the promise to Abraham. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And those original hearers knew exactly what he was claiming. Oh, you're greater than Mo Abraham. You're God. And they wanted to stone him. His enemies knew who he was claiming to be. Well, in chapters 29 to 34, he renews Israel's covenant again one more time, keeping his promise, being faithful. And Moses gives one final warning about the consequences of disobedience, and it's very prophetic that you're going to fail you're going to be scattered to the four winds, to the ends of the earth, among all the nations, but it's going to bring in the new covenant by the Spirit. Uh, turn to chapter 30. 
he had told them earlier, Moses had said, you need to circumcise your hearts and live. But Moses knew they couldn't do it. They couldn't circumcise their own hearts. They were hard-hearted, stiff-necked. They couldn't bring their own salvation. So what does Moses promise them in chapter 30, verse 6? Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Isn't that incredible? This downward spiral, Jason Meyer says, introduced by the advent of the law at Sinai, reveals that the law did not save Israel, and it won't save anyone now. Humankind needs a Savior, not more stipulations, he says. Isn't that true? Uh, You know, the problem is we always want more stipulations. Give me a checklist so I know I'm okay with God so I can go about my life. Read my Bible, pray, go to church, give, go to a midweek study. I'm good. But that's not the heart of relationship with God. It's communion with the triune God drawing near to Him. It's saying to Him, I'm yours, do with me whatever you want. All my life is yours. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm going to glorify you with my body, with everything that I have. Moses is trying to get the people to see this. And he says, you can't do it yourself. And so God's going to send someone who's going to do it. Going to do what you can't do. And his name is the Messiah. And I've been talking about him for five books now. Well, the book of Moses is one book. We divide it into five because that's how the scrolls divided it. It is one book, the book of Moses. Now, Israel's problem was seen in the words rebel. Numbers 20, Numbers 27. Seen in the word unbelief. Numbers 14. Numbers 20, seen in the word stiff-necked, Exodus 32. And God tells them, as I mentioned, Deuteronomy 10, circumcise your heart and don't be stiff-necked any longer. And so the cure for the heart in Deuteronomy 6 is you need the Shema. You need to hear, right? You need this word to be on your heart, to be written on your heart. Of course... They couldn't do it. And so an external cure like the law cannot heal an internal condition. Moses even predicts that Israel's rebellion will reach new levels after his death. Why? Deuteronomy 29.3, the Lord has not given Israel a heart to obey. Now, God promises a later prophet, Jeremiah 31, it's actually on the bulletin, I will write my law on your hearts. I'm going to bring about a new covenant where it won't be the law written on tablets of stone anymore. It's going to be the law written on your heart. And the one who's going to do that is the Messiah. And the way he's going to do it is Isaiah, he's going to be pierced for the people's transgressions. He's going to be crushed for their iniquities. But he's going to see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. So he's not going to stay dead. And what he's then going to do is he's going to pour out his spirit so that these dead bones live, Ezekiel. These dry bones live, that the spirit will come and this heart of stone will be taken out and a heart of flesh will be put in instead. And guess who does all of that? The Lord Jesus at the cross 
and his death and his burial and his resurrection and his exaltation to the right hand of God, seated there, ruling and reigning with the greatest authority, he then asked the Father, which he said he would do, to send the Spirit, and the Spirit came at Pentecost and brought about the new covenant and indwells every single Christian. So that not only Moses is a prophet of the Lord, a priest of God, a king, not only are there the priesthood of Leviticus, every Christian is now a kingdom of priests. And guess what? Now because Christ is the fulfillment of all of that, he's the greater priest, he's the greater king, he's the greater temple, we now as the church are the temple of God, this temple city that he's filling. Ephesians tells us that, chapter 2. Hebrews tells us that. Peter tells us that. We're living stones being placed into this holy temple, a dwelling place for God, and we're a priesthood of believers now who serve one another and we're ambassadors preaching others to be reconciled to God, to come in and be part of this temple city that God is in the process of making all things new through his Son, and he's going to send Jesus back again, and all things are going to be made new. And there'll be no more sin, and no more sorrow, and no more suffering, and no more death. This is the hope we have. And so the book of Moses ends leaving this unsettled, though, doesn't it? If we're hearing this, we ask, when will this happen? Who will bring this about? See, the book of Moses tells the story of covenant at Sinai and its failure, but it's not written on behalf of those in the old covenant alone. It's written from the perspective of a prophet whose eyes are fixed not on Sinai, but who are fixed on the covenant that lies beyond Sinai, the new covenant. This prophet who's going to come, this descendant of Eve who's going to come, who's going to bring about circumcision of the heart, Deuteronomy 30. And so because of this, the Pentateuch is ultimately about the Lord Jesus. Which is why I gave you all the application at the beginning. So that you wouldn't get lost in the weeds as we walk through. I want to mention one more thing that I'm going to bring out more in the weeks to come. But if you focus on the poems in the Pentateuch, you see that's exactly where the Messiah shines in glory. You see, the focal point of all the major poems in the Pentateuch, Genesis 1.11, Genesis 49, Exodus 15, Numbers 23 and 24, Deuteronomy 32 and 33, all of them point to the promise of a coming messianic king. He's the one who's going to usher in the new covenant, the circumcision of the heart through the spirit, who's going to cause us to worship in spirit and in truth and love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Leviticus says. At the end, we see a picture of the reversal of the fall, a picture of Eden restored. Turn over to Deuteronomy 33. I'm skipping over the, this song um, of Moses and blessing of Moses, and I wish I had time in 32 to say the rock was Christ that led him through the wilderness. And Paul said, hey, guess what? That rock, that's not the rock that was like the physical rock that was the one Moses struck with water. The rock is chapter 32 that, um, I might as well mention it now, verse 4. The rock, this isn't Dwayne Johnson. This is the OG rock, Yahweh. The rock, verse 4 of 32, his work is perfect for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. And the song goes on to worship the rock. 
Paul says, guess what? The rock that led him in the wilderness was Christ. It was Jesus. Guess who Moses knew in his pre-incarnate form? The Lord Jesus. I hope that encourages you. This is one book with a message and a theme that constantly points to our Savior, which means we haven't believed in vain. This is God's promise. Chapter 33, verse 27. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms And he drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. So Israel dwells in security. The fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. The heavens also drop down dew. I'll stop there. We could go to the next verse. A little easier to end on blessing than the judgment of verse uh, 29. Uh, They're going to crush their enemies. This is also part of the promise though, right? You have this promise of Eden restored. That promised land is going to be yours. But why is the promised land so great? It's not because it's merely a land flowing with milk and honey. It's because, verse 27, the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. He's there. And we're in His presence, just like Adam walked with God in the garden and had perfect communion with Him. We, by faith, now have communion with God. We have access to God. We can approach His throne of grace and find grace and mercy in our time of need. But there's coming a day when our faith will be made sight and we'll see His face and we'll serve Him forever. This world is not our home. We're passing through. We're pilgrims. But we have a kingdom that's coming, a temple city that's being prepared by our Savior who's preparing that place for us, who said, I'm going to come again, that where I am, you may be also. And it's coming. And the one who's going to bring in the new Jerusalem as the ultimate temple city and all the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth will be a place for us to be fit as a kingdom of priests and God's presence among us forever this is the one that the Pentateuch was pointing towards this is Jesus on the road to Emmaus saying slow to believe what all the prophets said beginning with Moses he went through and started pointing to himself how all of the scriptures spoke of him and so as I close here I just want you to be encouraged that salvation has always been by faith And salvation means we've always needed a new heart. But God has brought about the solution to our problem. And it's in His Son, Jesus. And in Him, there is great hope. And in the new covenant that He's brought about, not only do we have the command to be holy, we have the ability to be holy. Because we are not left as orphans, but the Holy Spirit is indwelling us conforming us and transforming us into the image of his son and we're going to be fit for his presence forever father thank you for this word and this time thank you for your son 